The Athletic. The fans hate the manager, the players are unhappy, league form has collapsed since Christmas they slide down the table, and now they've dropped two more precious points in a game they really should have won. But enough about Newcastle United, where does this leave Tottenham Hotspur? My name is Jack Pitbrook, you're listening to the View from the Lane podcast, I'm joined as always by James Moore. James, who should be more embarrassed by that result on Sunday? Uh, yeah, it's a good question and a great intro. You know, it's quite it's quite difficult to say. I mean, uh, statistically, I mean, we're recording this podcast later in the week than we normally do, so a lot of the kind of uh, d- digestion of the fallout of that to mix two metaphors in a slightly unsavoury way, um, and that, that's kind of been done. So I think you know, crunching the numbers and talking about the the xG and the fact that Newcastle had more shots against Spurs than they did in any other game. Uh, in the Premier League since they beat a sort of relegation-doomed Huddersfield in 2019. That's all kind of been done. But I, I think Newcastle probably will feel, forget embarrassment. I mean, Newcastle will definitely be more frustrated that they didn't win, I think. I mean, broadly speaking, they'll probably feel they need the points more. I mean, if you think avoiding relegation to the Premier League is more important, from the Premier League, sorry, it's more important than getting into the Champions League. And they were probably the better team, weren't they, Newcastle? At least in terms of sort of, the sort of tangible terms of creating good chances, because that's what XG tells us, and that they were way ahead. So yeah, probably Newcastle should be more frustrated and disappointed. Yeah, like you say, James, I don't want to get too bogged down in the details of the game that happened on Sunday, because it's, uh, it's Thursday morning right now. But without getting too bogged down in the weeds, Newcastle have taken 11 points in their last 18 games. They've scored 14 goals in their last 18 games. And yet Spurs found a way to let them have more than 20 shots. It really speaks to like the massive systemic failure of the sides, I think, that Spurs could allow themselves to be opened up and exposed that much by a team like Newcastle. It, again, it reminds me of... Uh, it's a little bit like the infamous Sheffield United game in July last year when... And, you know, this was... I think Sheffield United were probably in better nick then than Newcastle are now. And the way they just cut through Tottenham every time they went forward... Uh, is, it, is it kind of more like that Bournemouth game from last year Not uh, maybe in a slightly different way because that was more about Spurs being completely blunt yeah. and not being able to create any good chances against a team who were in bad form and conceding loads of goals where this is kind of you know Spurs not being able to kind of keep out a team who are in bad form and not scoring any goals so it's a slightly different thing but it's a similar sort of frustration I think and again I, I know we talked about uh, you know all the statistics have kind of been plucked from this game already but the fact that Jolinton has scored I think four Premier League goals and two of them have come against Spurs that's pretty appalling really isn't it and that's damning yeah and, and don't forget this is a Newcastle team without their two who I would I think most people would consider their two best players in uh, Callum Wilson and uh, Sir Maxima they're, they're the two best players yeah. right? certainly in an attacking sense you'd say like they're the two biggest threats in their side and they're both missing okay one comes on for the last sort of 25 minutes or whatever. Uh, yeah, and to concede two goals to a team like that, and, and you know, uh, in some games, you you know, you'll concede, you know, there'll be like a deflection, an own goal, or, you know, you'll, you'll concede an unlucky penalty, like some stupid VAR thing will happen or whatever, and you'll concede two goals and you'll feel like, well, that's ludicrous that that happened, but that will happen sometimes. Spurs got battered in this game. And don't forget, though, you know, there's the, those two Gale chances early in the game, and I know, you know, you don't score both because one's immediately after the other. But they both happened. Uh, and there are so many other chances during the game that I 
Uh, Newcastle should genuinely feel annoyed they didn't win. I mean, and they may really regret that at the end of the season. They may look at that and say those are two points that that, that cost them ultimately. It, it's just it's, it's incredible. And I know people won't be at all surprised to hear that we are going to talk about the manager. In a yeah. Bit. But some of the stuff that was said after that game, on the basis of what we saw, genuinely infuriating. And I, and, I, and it's quite good that we didn't record this on Monday because I was obviously incredibly annoyed about it on Monday. But I think the fact I'm still annoyed about it now on Thursday. I don't, it's quite telling, isn't it? Yeah. I'm quite a placid person normally. You can subscribe to The Athletic right now for a special price of £3.99 a month for six months. That's 40% off the full price of a subscription. You'll enjoy great analysis and in-depth features from the very best football writers around, as well as ad-free versions of all of our podcasts. So go to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod to take advantage of this special 40% discount. That's theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod. And if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review. It's interesting because I've been thinking about to what extent is this a continuation of the problems that we've seen Spurs have in games where they're one goal up against a team they should be beating and then they sit back in the second half and... um, and then eventually concede at the end. Um, because, you know, you've got Newcastle at home, West Ham at home in a sense, Palace away, Wolves away, Fulham at home. As it's happened six times now, that means they've dropped 12 points in those games. If you add those 12 points to Spurs' current points tally, they'd have 61 points, which is one ahead of Manchester United in second place. So clearly it's a big issue, but I don't think it's exactly the same as those games because, for example, Palace away, Newcastle at home certainly... Spurs were really dominant until the second half, and it's only in the second half when the problem started to come. Whereas in this game, in the Newcastle away game from Sunday, Newcastle were all over Spurs for most of the game, really. So in that sense, Spurs were played worse in this game than they did in some of those other games that I've just listed. Uh, and that really, I think, is quite—I think that is quite damning of the of the lack of control that Tottenham have in the game and it's not just to do with that kind of nervous defensive retreat in the second half although obviously that did also happen look there's tons and tons to talk about in this game one thing I wanted to flag up which I thought was really interesting is uh, Jonathan Veal who covers Spurs the Press Association did an interview with a man called Jeremy Lazarus who is a mental performance coach uh, talking about why why is it that Spurs keep making these mistakes right at the end of the game and conceding goals in the last five or ten minutes, which cost them two points and has been such a big problem with Spurs this season. And um, it's a really interesting piece. I'd, I'd recommend some of those quotes being put, picked up by other outlets. I'd recommend taking a look. And Jeremy Lazarus says, there is almost certainly a mental issue, whether that comes from lack of motivation, lack of confidence or other factors. Could there be an element of panic or fear in the last 10 minutes? If it has happened five or six times before, do the doubts start creeping into people's mind? Then he brings up this term called psychological safety, which is what he says that Spurs are lacking. And he says, if you are on edge and thinking, if I make a mistake, not only am I letting the team down, but I'm going to get criticised publicly, then it's more likely that you're going to be a bit scared and make bad decisions. And the point he's making here is that the more scared you are of making a mistake, the more likely you are to make that mistake. If you're not scared of the consequence of making a mistake, you're actually less likely to do it. And James, that is really how it looks, isn't it? Like There's this grim sense of inevitability in these games where the only one time it didn't happen was Fulham away, when Spurs actually did manage to hang on to the lead. But almost every other time, 
It's just, you just know what's going to happen b- before it happens. It's like a, watching a disaster film or a horror film. Like, it's, everybody knows how it's going to end. And you can tell the players seem to know that as well. And it was true against Zagreb, in a sense. The players just look frozen. I wonder, you know, it must be, as a fan, it must be uh, exasperating, that sense of inevitability. And when we talked a bit about this uh, after the Stoke League Cup game, if you remember when Delhi got hooked for giving the ball away kind of a couple of phases before the goal that Spurs conceded. And Mourinho made quite a big song and dance out of uh, the fact that Deli Alli had taken an, un- unnecessary, an unnecessary risk in the middle third of the pitch that resulted in Spurs losing the ball and then ultimately conceding a goal. And I think you can kind of trace the decline back. I mean, I know uh, the Liverpool and I think the Leicester defeats were before that. And the Liverpool game, I think we talked about before quite a few times, the, the Liverpool away defeat, sorry, uh, I think we talked about that quite a few times and I generally think we were in agreement that they played quite well in that game and were sort of unlucky. Le- Leicester's slightly different. Obviously, they give away a super penalty and then they're kind of chasing it and obviously Leicester a decent side as well. But yeah, it, ha- it does seem, kind of seem like bar that kind of purple patch when Bale was in the team sort of a month or so back now, uh, they have genuinely looked really poor since then. I don't you know. I mean, I know it's really easy to kind of draw that conclusion with hindsight, but it, kind of feels like that kind of thing does make sense. Like the idea that players are suddenly absolutely terrified of making mistakes because now they're going to get hammered by the manager. Uh, and I think you see that sometimes in, in normal times, you know, a player will kind of retreat inside themselves and not and not kind of do the things that you would expect them to do with a ball where, because I think they're going to get stick from the fans. You know, when they're out of form and suddenly like it, it just completely goes out the window. They're like, they can barely string two passes together. But to, to, to be suffering that, because you think you're going to get, get criticised publicly by the manager. I mean, that is, you know, and I mean, I know like we're not suggesting that's necessarily what happened. I mean, this is a theory. It is incredible, isn't it? The idea that that could be the case. I mean, it is, it would, it would be pretty damning if that was the case. Yeah, it would be. But the, you can just, you can just see by watching them that they do, a lot of the players do look very scared of making mistakes, scared of trying anything on the ball, reluctant to get on the ball, I think, with a few notable exceptions of um, Ndombele and Kane, really, or maybe Hoiberg. They do look anxious. They do look kind of, like you said, withdrawn inside themselves a bit. And I think connected to that is this issue which Spurs have, which is retreating further and further back as the game goes on, which I know Mourinho has said is not his plan, but nevertheless, the players keep doing it every time in games like this. And the, and the fact that the players are falling back on this instinct, that, you know, even if Mourinho isn't explicitly telling them to do that, I think it does say something about the player. It does say a lot about the player's mentality right now that they always fall, fall back into this kind of comfort blanket approach because they haven't got the bravery or courage or whatever, however you want to phrase it to keep, keep defending high up the pitch in the second half of games. So clearly the issue is both, ta- it's a mixture of tactical, technical, psychological, but the same thing keeps happening every week. That does kind of tap into something that I've seen a few people tweeting in the last couple of weeks or months, actually. Um, you know, people suggesting that Mourinho's methodology has worked for Kane, Son, and Dombele, Hoiberg maybe. It, therefore, the problem is the other players. But Mourinho isn't just the manager of Son Kane and Dombele. He's the manager of that entire squad, that entire group of players. So you can't just say, well, it's worked for these four. So the other (laughs) 17, 18, 19 of you must be wrong. 
I mean, that's absolutely ludicrous. You wouldn't like go into any other any other company, any other workplace, and do it and work in a way that's suited for people with nobody else, and then be like, well, you know, it worked for this minority of the players or the people, the employees. So you should just kind of fall into line. I mean, it's crazy. Ultimately, so much of the stuff that comes out of Mourinho's mouth, I think actually he, I don't know if he realises makes him look quite bad. I mean, this, and I think you're probably about to talk about this, this uh, BBC interview that he did after the game on Sunday. Yeah. Where he was, uh, was it Juliet Farrington, I think, wasn't it? I think so, yeah. Well, he was asked after the game, your team are conceding so many goals when they've gone in front. They're throwing away so many leads. This was somewhere, this was an area of strength for you in the past. Why is it, why is it not working for you now? And as everyone who's listening to this will know, his response was, uh, same coach, different players. But I, I mean, you and I talked about this on Monday or Tuesday. I mean, you were quite indignant about this. I was, yeah. I mean, it is, I, it is absolutely ludicrous that you would come out of a response like that, which just highlights the fact that you're like, you haven't changed the way you work in 15 years. Yeah. And 15 years, I, 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 to really extrapolate the cliche, 15 years in football is a bloody long time. Yeah, it really is. I mean, is. If, if a week in football slash politics is a long time, uh, 15 years. I mean, the game has changed so much. People have changed so much. Uh, you can't like apply all the same methodology to people uh, and footballers now that you would have done in 2005. It's crazy to think you can do that. Yeah. It's just, uh, it's just arrogant to think you can do that. Yeah. And sure, it worked then, but you've got to develop and, and move with the times and move with people. You can't you can't apply the same sensibilities to the year 2021 as you did in, in 2005 or 2006. It's just insane to think that. When I caught up on this afterwards, my jaw absolutely dropped at same coach, different players. And, and not just because of the way it attempted to pass blame onto the players and imply that they're you know not worthy of being managed by the great Mourinho. Because we have heard that for months. You know, Mourinho has been blaming the defence all season. Talking about you know the individual, it's related to the individual quality of the defenders. Even yesterday, even on Sunday, he said uh, that there are mistakes, which I probably shouldn't even call mistakes because they're related to the qualities that the players have. That is to say that these defenders are simply not good enough. But it it wasn't that element of it that surprised me. What what shocked me about same coach, different players, James, is that this is what people on Twitter call a self own. Because for me, like the the whole, as you just said, like the whole story of the last ten years of Mourinho's career is that he had all this incredible success in the two thousands, and then really ever since twenty ten, it's been downhill. And his his famous methods cannot get the best out of the next generation of players. Like that was true, Chelsea second time around. It was true at Manchester United, and now it's true at Tottenham. Like m- modern players get tired of him faster than ever because you know there's tons of reasons for that, but I think. In a sentence, it's because kind of millennial Gen Z players don't like getting hammered every week in public and in private. They want to be, you know, they want to be encouraged. They want to be praised. They want to be rewarded. You know, some people might call that snowflake. Other people might say it's just younger people more sensitive nowadays. Uh, But clearly, I mean, at least in my mind, that is what has changed. And that's why Mourinho's methods don't work anymore. And so for Mourinho to boast about same coach, different players, as if it vindicates him, to me, that's just an act of public self-sabotage because whether intentionally or not, and I mean, he must know this because of course he knows it. He's just revealing the roots of his own failure. Like he knows that modern players are different and he must know that that's why his methods don't work so well. I mean, the, the best response I saw to that on Twitter was a couple of people tweeting like Spurs Spurs team, Spurs starting lineups from games under Pochettino where they played incredibly well, including the, the 3-0 win over Dortmund in the Champions League in 2019. 
which is obviously just over two years ago, which is crazy. I mean, I've got this team in front of me now. And I mean, it's, so Lloris, Foyt, a back three of Foyt, Sanchez, Alderweireld, Aurier and Vertonghen, wingbacks, Sissoko and Winks in midfield, Eriksen is the number 10 and Son and Lucas up front. I mean, like, I think you would say, I mean, sure, with some of those players, there's like a natural decline that you get from like, you know, going past 30, you're going to kind of inevitably see that. And I suppose that would apply to a couple of those players. But I, you know, that team isn't a better team than Spurs have put out in a lot of matches this season. And yet that team was able to absolutely wipe the floor with Dortmund, who at the time, I think, were top of the league. Everyone was hipsters like you, Jack, were probably going on about how they were going to win that game 5-0. Yeah. I, I remember the build-up to that game all being about how great that Dortmund team were and, you know, Pulisic and Sancho were going to absolutely destroy Spurs and they win that game 3-0 yeah. because they had a manager who gave them belief. Yeah. It's just, and it was like giving them like tactical instruction that made sense. Yeah. And now you've got like a similar group of players, you know, you've lost Ericsson now, who's obviously the big loss from that group. And as you say, one or two would have declined because that's just what happens in football and in life. But, you know, you're chucking in Hoiberg, Ndombele, Lo Celso, you know, obviously Kane didn't play in this game. <laughs> and it's just like, there's no reason to think that the group of players that they have now should be that much worse than this. It's crazy. It's absolutely ludicrous to, to to believe that, and even more ludicrous is the manager of the football club, the manager of these people, and they are people, don't forget, to come out and say that publicly. Yeah, yeah, I I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the Winks and Sissoko thing is so instructive because for during the 2018-19 season, a lot of the talk amongst Spurs fans, I remember, was. Oh, Winks and Sissoko in midfield. Like, it's not ideal, but we're just going to have to make the most of it. Do you know what I mean? Like, it was... No, nobody thought that Winks and Sissoko was the ideal midfield partnership. And yet, Winks and Sissoko nevertheless managed to get Tottenham to a Champions League final. And, I, you know, I, I'm at, we're both big fans of Winks, but arguably, Hoybe, you know, Hoybjerg, I think, is the best traditional holder in the Premier League at the moment. Uh, and Dombele is a uniquely brilliant player. And I think Lacelso is actually a brilliant player as well, although he's not really showed it this season. And as you say, like the individuals available to Mourinho are pretty good. Like he's got, of course, they could be better at centre back, and they could probably do with a better right back. But um, beyond that, the team's pretty good. You know, he's got he's got good, experienced players in almost every position, and yet he acts as if he's managing the dog and duck sometimes. You know what I mean? I, I can see this is something that the f- fans on social media are really not happy with at the moment. Is the way that he talks about the squad as if he's kind of uniquely unlucky to be managing such a limited group of players sometimes. I think it's massively disrespectful, obviously, to those players. That goes without saying, but I do think it's massively disrespectful to the fans as well to like think you can pull the wool over people's eyes like that. And I know some people have bought it. And I know, you know, we, we've been critical of players on this podcast over the course of the season. I think all, all of those centre-backs have had points where they have played badly. Um, and, you know... Uh, some of the other players as well haven't had great seasons. I mean, I don't, you know, you can't avoid that and they shouldn't be completely absolved of blame there. But like the idea that these are all suddenly bad players. And yeah, sure. I, I, I mean, Mourinho walked into the club and a lot of those players were in what in football we would term a bad moment. Yeah. But as the manager of the club, someone who's been brought in to instill winning mentality, the whole point of you is to come in and make these guys feel 10 feet tall. And if you can't do that, you failed at your job. It's just as simple as that. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of worrying. Uh, one thing I wanted to mention that was I thought was really interesting was a piece written by our friend and colleague, Michael Cox, who came to this podcast a few weeks ago. Uh, this was, I thought, a really interesting piece pointing, 
looking at Mourinho's comments after the game and trying to pick out this issue of individual versus collective responsibility. Like, do you do you set up a team so that you know whose fault it is if things go wrong, or do you set up a team that wins games? So he starts off by looking at the arguments over uh, zonal versus man-to-man marking at set pieces, and then draws the comparison out to Mourinho and says that Mourinho likes to blame the individual defenders when, the mis- when they make defensive mistakes of the sort that happened again in the Newcastle game. But if a team is being asked to defend very deep in when, when trying to defend a one-goal lead, which they're not very good at doing, and the individual defenders are asked to do a lot more defending than they might have done in the past, and then they happen to make a mistake or then something goes wrong, why should you blame the, def- the individual defenders for that and not the manager who's putting them in that position? thought it was a really smart, interesting piece by Coxie, which I think really gets to the nub of one of these big issues with Mourinho's management, which is that he's putting the players on the hook for problems, which I think are ultimately of his own making. One other small issue I wanted to pick up off the back of the game on Sunday was this kind of strange issue with Toby Alderweireld, who Mourinho said after the game had not been able to train, along with Serge Aurier having not arrived back in time for his COVID test. And yet then photographs later emerged of Alderweireld in training in the build-up to the game. So I I don't know what's happened there. But, I mean, it's not a good picture overall, is it, to have the manager coming up with reasons why the players aren't picked, which can then be sort of disproved by the facts. And again, it makes you wonder about the position of Alderweireld at the club. He's obviously a very experienced player who got a big new contract at the start of the Mourinho era, but now finds himself slightly out of the picture at Tottenham with Roden and Sanchez now being the preferred centre-back pairing. And it does make me think, James, that the number of previously reliable and important players who Mourinho has to pick from, it feels like it's decreasing a bit. Yeah, that is... I mean, it does seem like that's kind of... He's kind of shooting himself in the foot there a little bit, right? I mean, this kind of confrontational... Was it was it called confrontational Confrontational leadership. leadership, yeah. I mean, you know, we talked before about man management strategies that may or may not have worked 15 years ago, and perhaps that's one that doesn't work now. But surely, purely based on those numbers, if you're going to kind of fall out with people and marginalise people uh, for the sake of kind of basically kind of underlining how much power you have at the club, which is, you know... Uh, you can kind of see the logic in doing it, but if you do it to too many players and you end up with... I mean, who do you think are the players that are left now that he, that you would say were kind of his trusty lieutenants? Because the other clubs he's been at has always been like a core group of players, like big personalities, leaders in the dressing room. Your Matarazzi's at Inter and John Terry's at Chelsea and whatever. I mean, who were the players that you think would, would run through walls for him at Spurs? I'm not, I mean... Kane, Lucas, Hoybjerg, maybe Ndombele. Maybe Regulon, I don't know. Yeah, who knows? I, I, but it, it feels like you need more. Like you need like a re- a really strong sort of core group of players yeah. who are definitely among the best players at the club. Because there's no point having like a fringe player being like, you know, <laughs> like like one of your trusty lieutenants. If they're not always going to be in a team, it's sort of pointless, isn't it? If you're then going to pick them purely on that basis, I'm not suggesting that has happened here, obviously. Yeah. And what was surprising to me is that. For the Aston Villa game, which obviously came three days after Dinamo Zagreb and had a bit of a um, last chance saloon feel to it, Mourinho picked that kind of very surprising team. You know, bringing Roden back in, bringing Tanganga in, 
bring Lacelso back in, Vinicius up front with Kane. And it worked, you know, that he picked this bizarre team, but his his roll of the dice, he landed whatever wins you a game of dice. Sorry, that's that doesn't make sense. You, you, you know what I mean? Like he took a risk and it worked for, for that Villa game. And then for the first game back after the two week international break, he kind of picks the same strange team. I don't know whether or not that team was the whether or not it was the right team for the game, but it does I I don't know. It it, it does feel a little bit like the uh there's not really any continuity at all in terms of selection. I don't really think anybody knows what the best Spurs team is at all. If you ask the th- yeah. if you ask a thousand Spurs fans what the best Spurs, what the best team would be, you get a thousand different answers. And that's bad because at this stage in the se- you know, Spurs have been playing what almost 50 games this season now. Uh you would like them to have a slightly clearer idea about about what the best team was or the right combinations of players or the right or even the right formation. I mean that definitely has to play in the mind of the players, doesn't it? And and the thing that I think is probably more damaging to sort of the mentality of the players is like the inconsistencies with like what you get dropped for and what you get back into yeah. the team for. You know, like Bale was in the team for three weeks, it did incredibly well, then had one bad game and basically straight back out yeah. again. Other players have been allowed to like you know, we talked about Son a couple of times who who obviously had a really good first half of the season. And although his numbers aren't terrible in the second half of the season, I don't think anyone would say he's played as well. There's never been any like risk of him getting dropped. And even the suggestion of it probably to most people would sound weird. But if you think of how well Bale played for three or four weeks and then suddenly he was gone again and like, you know, now you would say like there's no chance of him being particularly heavily involved between now and the end of the season. It just feels like that's the way it's going to go. If you think of a player like Aurier who had... I think we were in agreement, like, at a very good first half of the season. Had massively improved. Like, his concentration focus seemed to be much better. He's making far fewer mistakes. He looked really good going forward, as always. And far better defensively. Yeah, sure, he made the mistake against Leicester, which is a bad one. But, you know, take the rough with this move for a player like that, I guess. He's going to take some risks and he's going to make some mistakes. But then he makes another, or is said to have made another mistake in that Liverpool game. Gets hooked and then it's, you know... <laughs> it all kind of kicks off and he's out of the team again. And then since then, he's kind of been in and out. And we've seen Doherty and Tanganga play games at right back. And it, you know, it just seems like there's not really the consistency. And Dyer is another one who, you know, was one of, you probably would have said in the first half of the season, was one of Mourinho's boys. Yeah. And he hasn't been in the team in the, or as much in the second half of the season. And again, I'm sure there'll be people listening saying, well, do you want him in the team? Perhaps you don't, but... Mourinho clearly did at a point, you know, and it can maybe it ties into the thing you're saying about fear as well. I guess players are so terrified of like you know making mistakes and being criticised and being dropped and then being out of a team for ages, and then like if you're out of a team for half a season, you know, if you're Eric Dyer, do you then miss out on the Euros? If you're Serge Aurier, do you then end up like being stuck at Spurs next season, never playing and not getting a move because you've got a year in a contract? You know, like. there are bigger things at play for these guys than just like the next match. It's their like kind of careers. You know, a, a half a season for a footballer is like a big chunk of a, of a career, isn't it? It's not hard to imagine there's not a, not a great atmosphere when things like that are going on. I think that that if you're a manager, those are the kind of like small wins you can really engineer for yourself. And I just don't think some of those situations have necessarily been handled brilliantly. I mean, I know like ultimately he has to pick a team that he thinks are going to win football matches. I don't know that necessarily looking at the bigger picture, looking longer term or medium term, that some of those rash decisions have necessarily even been in Mourinho's best interest, really. Yeah, quite. And it does feel a little bit, these selection issues do make me feel a little bit like it's, um, 
management by grand gesture. It's uh, what kind of a team can I pick to send a message to players? Who can I drop to to scare the other players into playing well? I mean, you kind of wrote this, though, isn't it? It can't, it yeah. can't be your message, can it? Some of it has to actually be like kind of, you know, like theory and, and yeah. like football. You can't all be about, like you say, these gestures. You actually have to manage some football players through some football matches and win them and, you know, be successful. This Sunday, Manchester United at home can't work out is this a good team for you for Spurs to play or a bad team I mean Spurs you know on the, on the plus side Spurs battered United at Old Trafford back in October which does feel a very very long time ago now uh, produced one of their best performances in the Premier League for years I think in that game yeah. uh, United are a very strange team I think they're very up and down they're very inconsistent even now under Solskjaer so I definitely don't think that they're I don't think they're at all unbeatable. And the way that they play, Spurs proved in the game at Old Trafford that there is space you can get into there. United obviously lost badly to Leicester in the FA Cup recently. Their league form has been kind of not too bad. They haven't actually lost a Premier League game since Sheffield United at home back in January. Uh, So they're obviously in much better league form than, than Tottenham are. And they have recorded a few big wins, not least against Manchester City recently. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, I've kind of given up trying to make predictions at this stage of the season, James. It's been such a strange season. Have you got any reasons to be optimistic? I mean, I, a couple of things. I mean, quite aside from winning 6-1 at Old Trafford in October, I mean, Manchester United haven't been particularly convincing in the last couple of league games. I mean, they have won both of them against Brighton and West Ham, but I, I wouldn't say they were particularly impressive in either. The fact that they're playing on Thursday night away against Granada in the Europa League and I suppose famously now have a few clear midweeks for the rest of the season if we want to spin that into a positive so yeah I mean that might be another thing that goes in their favour and the fact that Solskjaer I think maybe even more than Mourinho this season has been incredibly to be generous we'll say pragmatic in the the matches against the other big six quote-unquote teams and I think their record has been pretty poor. They scored like one goal in open play. I know before that Manchester City game, I think it was, they scored one goal in open play or whatever it was. And I suspect, well, that might make it a pretty a pretty dour affair on Sunday afternoon if that is the case because Mourinho probably isn't going to go for the jugular, is he? Yeah. It's one of those games where you kind of expect Spurs might sort of turn it on a bit. But that's not really based on a, 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 like kind of scientific evidence or footballing analysis is just kind of based on, you know, the way these things seem to work, that occasionally a team is in a bit of a bad moment and then they turn it on against someone decent that you expect them to get smashed by. Oh, well, we talked a lot about that kind of Spurs record against the top sides and the only team in the top half they've beaten since, uh, is it like sort of November or whatever, was that Villa game? Yeah. I know. And Villa without Grealish, you could probably make an argument that that isn't really a top half team, is it? No. It's, it's probably the last roll of the dice, I think, isn't it, for top four? Like, if they'd won on Sunday, and I know they would have ended up going back out to fifth on West Ham on the Monday night, but you could kind of feel like that might have given them a bit of a, you know, a boost and a bit of momentum, and it might have felt like they were moving in the right direction again. You know, you can see, like, that clear objective in their, in their kind of vision. And I just think that one setback might just be what, you know, of that goal at Newcastle might just be one setback too many, I think. Yeah, I worry it might be... Um, I wouldn't be surprised if it's like the game in... Uh, back in June, the last time United went to the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, 
Spurs went one nil up. Great goal from Stephen Bergwijn, and then sat back. And uh, United sc- United scored a penalty with as it's sort of five, six, seven minutes left after Pogba came on. I mean, I imagine that this time Pogba will probably start, but uh, I wouldn't be too shocked to see something like that. Um, I think that's probably all we've got time for on this week's podcast. Uh, thank you very much for bearing with us. With what, our- what happened to Aguero? Oh yeah, Aguero. Uh, <laughs> this will cheer you up, Spurs. There's been some talk that Aguero might end up at Tottenham next season. Obviously, he's leaving Manchester City this summer after 10 years at the Etihad Stadium. Personally, I would be very surprised. I don't really think Spurs... doesn't really fit the profile of player that I can see Spurs signing. And also, I'm not sure Aguero would really want to go and join Spurs. Yeah, with all due respect, I think I'll probably have better offers. Um, James, cheer up, this will cheer you up. <laughs> James, what do you think? This ageing player won't want to join your club. Uh... I know. I mean, obviously, that's not going to happen. He's going to want massive money. More money than Spurs are going to play, like you say. Yeah. It's not the profile of player Spurs would try and sign. Uh, assuming they're going to keep Kane, I don't really necessarily see where Aguero would play anyway. No. And uh, to me, this uh, it's just, I think it's a thing to get more money out of Juve or Inter or PSG. Whoever, oh, yeah. Imagine. Yeah, yeah exactly. I can totally see Aguero at Inter or Juve next season. I He's incredibly... I mean, Juventus had a master of like picking up these Bosmans and yeah. paying him mad money for like two years. Like that that feels like the kind of thing that could definitely happen. He's not going to play for Spurs or West Ham. No, although it would be quite... Yeah, it would be cool to see him. But, you know, I, I completely agree it's not going to happen. Anyway, uh, hopefully, Spurs fans, next time we're doing a podcast, which we back to our normal recording time of next Monday... Uh, we'll be talking about the amazing win over over United, which has got Spurs' top four hopes back on track. But let's wait and see on that one, because uh, who knows how the next week is going to turn out in Spurs' world. But thank you very much to everyone for joining us and for bearing with us this week. Thank you very much to James and producer Tom. Please keep tweeting us, sending in questions, ideas, DMs, etc. We're trying to get round to some more of your of your ideas and thoughts next week. Have a good week. The Athletic. Brought to your ears by The Athletic, I'm Adam Hurry and Football Clichés is the podcast you never knew you needed. Every week, to quite unnecessary depth, we examine the words, the phrases, the accepted wisdom, the mannerisms, the habits, the gestures, the symbols, the sounds and the smells that everyone takes for granted in football, but which really are the glorious glue that holds it all together. For example, have you ever really listened to the Football League goals roundups? I mean, really listen to them? Because they all sound pretty much like this. Team X went into this game with just one win in their last 13. And when Team Y took the lead inside four minutes at Stadium Z, the home fans were probably starting to fear the worst. But Striker A had other ideas and this game turned on its head in the space of five minutes midway through the second half. First, a smart finish from the edge of the box brought Team X level and he repeated the trick on the hour mark to bring his tally for the season to 22. By now, Team X were in the mood, and although striker A squandered a gilt-edge chance to complete his hat-trick, on-loan Dutchman winger B made it three with a curling effort from long range. Team Y's misery was compounded in stoppage time when midfielder C's late challenge on fullback D saw them reduced to ten men. An afternoon to forget for manager E's men then, but Team X will hope they have finally turned a corner under caretaker boss manager F. Listen to Football Clichés wherever you get your podcasts and also ad-free when you subscribe to The Athletic.